Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Where else are you going to find a Savior like that? We don't come to Him because we're filled and because we're good and because we've got it all together. He doesn't say, get your life on track and then you can come to me. He says, no, come wounded, come broken, come empty, come guilty, and you'll find forgiveness and fullness from Him and Him alone. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Colossians chapter 3. just want to offer a congratulations to those. If you're still doing your New Year's resolutions, congratulations. Uh, Emilio reminded us that January 19th, that's quit day for most of New Year's resolutions. So if you're still going strong on January 22nd, good work. Congratulations. Uh, one of your New Year's resolutions might be uh, to get more involved in the life of the church. I hope that it is. Uh, so just want to give another plug. We have a marriage class that meets Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock, downstairs. Uh, we met last week. It was a wonderful time, uh, and the weeks ahead look like they're going to be wonderful as we just really get to reflect on the gospel and God's love for us in Christ and how that's a picture that we get to portray in marriage. Uh, other small groups are meeting other nights during the week, so that I encourage you to get plugged in. Well, tonight we're in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at Paul's instructions to slaves and masters. Last week, Tim was talking about instructions to, you know, wives submitting to husbands, children obeying their parents. So we're sort of doing a two-week mini-series on controversial subjects. But I think what you see in, in all of these texts that God is concerned about a wife that needs to submit to her husband. And he's concerned about children that are under submission to their parents. And he's concerned about slaves that are under authority to masters. And he's concerned because he knows that those, the people in those situations are often in a place where they're vulnerable. And they're at risk. Because they're not in power. And God is very concerned with those that are under authority because he knows that authority can be abused and misused very often. And so we're going to look at what God has to say here, and it is a difficult subject to work with, and so we want to read this text, uh, and then we'll pray. Colossians 3.22. Bondservants, many of your translations may say slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to these verses, and for many of us to hear just this first verse that we're looking at, slaves obey in everything to your earthly masters, it can make us very uncomfortable because our minds go to a certain place when we think of slavery. And we wonder if that's what God's talking about here. I don't understand how God could advocate for such a thing. But Lord, give us humility to receive your word as it is. Help us to see what you're really talking about, not maybe some ideas that we have about what you might be talking about, but help us to truly hear your voice through your word. 
And I think as we do that, we'll see that really these verses portray your care and your concern for your people, particularly those that are under authority. You want them to know that you are over them, and you are over their masters, and they can trust in you, and they can work with joy for you, not for any man. So Lord, give us humility as we go to your word, as we tackle a difficult subject. I pray that your spirit would fill us so that we would see what your word truly says and that our hearts would be receptive to what your word truly says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So really, before we can even jump into what these verses are talking about, we have to take a step back and consider the larger question of the relationship between slavery and the Bible. Because this is often a place where on one side, some people will attack the Bible and say, well, that can't possibly be a book that you should pay any attention to because it advocates slavery. On the other side, you might have people that say they believe the Bible and they take part in abusive forms of slavery and justify it with the scripture. And so we want to take time to really think through what's going on. An example of an accusation that some might level against the Bible Atheist Sam Harris, he says, Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instruction do we get from the God of Abraham on the subject? We'll consult the Bible, and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. So what do we do with an accusation like that? Does the God of Abraham, does the God we serve, expect us to keep slaves? Now, before we really dive into that subject, we need to also take a step back. Because we need to be careful that we're not reading modern ideas into what God says in his word. A small illustration would be Romans 1.16. It says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Some people will point out that the word for power in Greek is dunamis, and they'll say, well, that's where we get our word dynamite. So you could think of it like the gospel is the dynamite of God. But what's the problem with that? Dynamite wasn't around when Paul wrote Romans 1.16. So it would be wrong to take our concept of dynamite and then read it back into Romans 1.16. So when we see the word slavery, we have to ask the question, does it mean what I think it means? And I think most of us, when we hear the term slavery, we think of one thing. We think of American or colonial slavery. What was American slavery? American slavery was the horrific kidnap and sale of another race that was deemed to be subhuman, to be owned and forced to do whatever the owner desired. I mean, my, my first memory, a vivid memory, of human cruelty was in elementary school when I saw a picture of a slave ship. And I saw the picture of men and women created in the image of God being made to lie shoulder to shoulder by the hundreds in a space that was only probably two and a half feet high for a one to two month journey across the Atlantic. 10 to 20% of those on those ships would die on the journey which would be about one to two million people. It's estimated that 15 to 30% of those that survived the journey would die between hitting the coast and their travel to confinement. So that out of every 100 slaves that reached America, 40 more had died 
in the process. Why would that happen? Because people thought they were subhuman. They're a commodity. They're a product like fruit that you'd bring across the Atlantic, and of course, some's going to spoil over the trip. If you survived the journey, you were sold into a lifetime of often cruel slavery. The average life expectancy of a slave in America was 21 years old. Slavery was racially motivated and oppressive. Africans were thought to be subhuman. They were property, they were animals, they were tools to be used by their master. And it was involuntary. Can I tell you how God feels about that kind of slavery? Exodus 21.16 says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If America was under Mosaic law at the time of slavery, every single slave owner deserved to be put to death. Even if they never laid a hand on a slave, they deserve to be put to death. Whether you sell or are in possession of a person, you deserved to be put to death. So some people will point the finger at the Old Testament and say, well, Israel had laws about slavery. And so the first thing we have to understand is the slavery that's in our minds is nothing like the slavery that was talked about in the Mosaic Law. The slavery in Israel was not racially motivated. It was economic, primarily. There's no banks, there's no credit cards. If you have no family and you have no goods, you are desperate. How are you going to provide for yourself? And so what people would do is they would enter into contracts to serve a family in exchange for room and board and sometimes even compensation. You know, a silly example is, you know, you go to a restaurant and you forget your wallet. And what are you going to do? They say, well, instead, you can't pay for your meal, so what are you going to do? I'm going to do dishes until I repay what's owed. That's just a small kind of picture about what was going on in Israel regard to slavery. In some cases, if a family had no children, the slaves who were in the home are actually considered to be the heirs of all the property. You remember Abraham and Sarah, they were promised by God that they would have an heir, and it's been a long time. And what does Abraham say before he has a child? He says, well, Eliezer, my servant, is my heir right now, and his servant would have inherited everything. So some people will say, well, there's these laws in the Old Testament that seem to condone slavery. And what we find is that those laws in the Old Testament are actually regulating slavery. Because once again, God knows. If, you, if a person comes to you and they're in a desperate situation that they can't get out of, and they offer their services to you in exchange for protection, what are evil men likely to do in that situation? They're likely to take advantage and abuse those that are desperate. And so God gives regulations to benefit those that are vulnerable. You could think of the laws protecting slaves in a similar way to almost like labor laws. And God is very clear. He says, if a slave, if you injure one of your slaves, they deserve to go free. He says, if a slave runs away from their master and comes to you, you do not send him back. In America, if a slave came to you running away, you were required to return them 
or you could go to jail. Servants in Israel as well, they would be released every seventh year. So when the Old Testament mentions slavery as though practice in Israel, that's the context. It's not forced slavery. It's not racial, thinking that one race is superior to another. The greatest, and in fact, the greatest example of forced slavery in the Old Testament is Israel under the Egyptians. And God is very clear that that was an evil which he was going to rescue his people from. And so that's a picture. So when the Old Testament does talk about slavery, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about slavery like we might think in America. Now, when you come to Roman slavery, that the, t- the context here of Colossians 3.22, it does bear some similarities to slavery in the Old Testament. It was often economic. If you couldn't pay a debt, you would enter into slavery. It was also political, where Rome was conquering these surrounding nations, and then these people that they conquered would come and they would work for them. Upwards of 30 to 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. It was the workforce of the Roman Empire. They were doctors, nurses, teachers, accountants. But once again, that slavery, even in Rome, it was not racially motivated. It was never saying one race is superior to another race. It was sometimes voluntary, and you could actually earn your freedom. Now, that's not to say that there weren't masters who mistreated and were abusive to their servants. So when you come to a text like this, you might ask the question, well, why doesn't Paul just say slavery is horrible, it's bad, get rid of it? Well, again, one thing is when he's talking about slavery, he's not talking about the form that we're familiar with. Also, the context is different in that Paul is not in a situation where he has political power to change anything. His primary concern is how can I help these Christian servants and these Christian masters give an accurate picture of what ultimately the lordship of Christ looks like. That's what he's doing. And in so doing, he does actually undermine the very idea that any man can own another man, which will one day lead to the dismantling of even Roman slavery. Now, of course, the matter of the Bible and slavery is further complicated by the fact that there were numerous slave-owning people in America that claimed to be Christians. They even used the Bible to defend the slavery that was happening in America. Even pastors during that time. One pastor, James Henry Thornwell of South Carolina, preached a sermon in 1861, and he claimed that human bondage of this kind, it's not sinful, and for a degraded race, bondage is its natural condition. Bishop Stephen Elliott of Georgia He justified slavery on the basis of, well, think about how many slaves get saved as a result of being slaves in America. He said, this is the best situation for a semi-barbarous people. And of course, there's countless stories of abuse and murder of slaves, even at the hands of so-called Christians. And while some use Christianity to justify slavery... Many others saw the reprehensible contradiction between Christianity and slavery. 
Frederick Douglass said this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. In fact, it's the truths of Scripture that actually form the basis to fight against this kind of slavery. Angelina Grimke was the daughter of slave owners in the South. She was so horrified by the practice of slavery that she left her family, she moved to the North, and she married another abolitionist. In 1836, she wrote an appeal to Christian women of the South. She said, the women of the South can overthrow this horrible system of oppression and cruelty, licentiousness and wrong. She called for people to appeal to their legislature. She said, if you could obtain but six signatures to such a petition in only one state, I would say send up that petition and be not in the least discouraged by the scoffs and the jeers of the heartless. She also called for people to petition churches in the South, in the slave states. She said, slavery must be attacked with the whole power of truth and the sword of the Spirit. You must take it up on Christian ground and fight against it with Christian weapons while your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And you are now loudly called upon by the cries of the widow and the orphan to arise and gird yourselves for this great moral conflict with the whole armor of righteousness upon the right hand and on the left. I think Angelina Grimke serves as a wonderful example of using the political powers that you do have to expose evil and attack injustice. We know that true lasting change only comes through Christ. And we also know that he often uses his people when they boldly proclaim the truth that evil is exposed and change can happen. Now, of course, these are bigger questions and issues than we have time to dive into today, but they are worth considering. And so before we transition to this text, I want to just remind you again, Scripture is definitive on its view of American slavery. I'll repeat Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers 
or kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Scripture is crystal clear. God is crystal clear. Slavery in America was a grievous evil and sin. And it's only Scripture that actually provides the basis for rejecting all forms of slavery like that. Acts 17.26 says this, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And God's heart from Genesis to Revelation has always been for all the nations. In Genesis, he calls Abraham and he says, Abraham's going to do what? Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he keeps his promise because in Revelation chapter 5, gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lamb, are people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God has always loved all the nations. And in fact, if we look closely, even at the passage that we're about to look at, we'll see that Paul is actually undermining the idea that one man can own another man. Turn back to Colossians 3.11. He says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in our text, verse 22, he says, Bondservants obey in everything who? Those who are your what? Earthly masters. Your true masters in heaven. Verse 24, slaves are looking forward to their heavenly reward because in verse 24, the end of verse 24, they are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters are to treat their bondservants justly and fairly. Why? Because you also have a master in heaven. Masters have a master. When he does refer to a slave in this passage, look how he describes him. Verse 9 in chapter 4, referring to Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. It says, with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Amen. The Bible neither endorses nor condones slavery. And in fact, it is only the truths of the Bible that provide the basis for abolishing slavery. Amen. And so what do we do with a text like this? Colossians 3.23, instructions to slaves and masters. It's not directly applicable to our work situations because there's a vast difference between being a slave and being an employee. You don't like your boss, you can quit. You can go find another job. That's not an option for the people that Paul is talking to. But I think what we find is that really we find instruction that reinforces the fact that God cares about those who are under authority. And they can live lives that are pleasing to him and deserving of rich rewards from him, even if they don't have power. And though the world might not acknowledge you, God does. And you can live a Christ-honoring life even as one under authority, even as those that are in inescapable relationships. 
And that's what Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1 is really all about. And so let's work through this passage first. Serve Christ when under authority. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul's really continuing what he's already started back in chapter 3. Set your mind on things above. We are all tempted to keep our minds on a very earthly level. And he says, what you need to do is remember who it is that you're actually serving and what he's done for you. Because in chapter 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's God. He rules over all things. He created all things, and all things exist for him. And then what did your Lord do? He gave himself up for you. Remember that. Set your minds on those things. Don't get caught up in the here and now. And so what does he say to servants? He says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey. That's the same command that he gave to children earlier, that they're to obey their parents. The idea of obey is that you follow instructions. It's built off of the same word to listen. So you're listening so that you know how to respond and to act. I remember one biblical counselor, he was talking about, you know, parents, they were sort of kind of exasperated with their kids. You know, they never, you know, do what I tell them to. So I tell them to do X, Y, Z, and they don't do it. If I go to them, they'll say, oh, well, I didn't hear you. And so this biblical counselor said, I think what you should do is you should start to discipline your kids for not listening. Uh, and so that's what this, this parent, these parents did. And all of a sudden, the listening problems that their kids had, they went away instantly. Because why weren't they listening? Because they didn't want to do whatever it is their parents were asking them to do. How's your listening to those that are in authority over you? If you're a child, do you listen to your parents so that you might respond? If you are at work, are you listening to your boss so that you might respond in obedience? Because remember, the overarching thought is you're not serving your boss. Children, ultimately, they're not serving their parents. They're serving the Lord Christ. What's the extent of our obedience in these situations when we're under authority? It says obey when it makes sense. No, wait. No, it says obey in everything. Yeah, but but what if I don't like it? Obey in everything. Now, of course, if it's asking you to sin or to be put in a dangerous situation, like... No, of course, those are exceptions. But everything else, obey in everything. Yeah, but what if my boss is not as smart as I am? Obey in everything. Well, what if I could think of 10 better ways to do this than the way that I'm being asked to do it? Obey in everything. Well, what about my coworkers? They're not doing it. Obey in everything. Because we're working for him. We're not working for them. Now, whom are we to obey when we're under authority? Earthly masters. Or masters according to the flesh. 
And this is a great encouragement, if you're, you know, struggling, to remember that this is a temporary arrangement. And you will not always have earthly masters. There will be one day when you just get to be with your heavenly master. You will not have flawed, infallible bosses forever. You will not have flawed, infallible parents forever. They are just your earthly masters. And it's also an encouragement to know that your masters have a master. Your masters will answer to the heavenly master for all the ways that they've treated you. Amen. And you, put that, you trust that to the Lord and you obey in everything as who are your earthly masters. Why? The big motivation over and over again. Fearing the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord. At the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. You don't serve because of the worthiness of the person asking you to do it. You serve because of the worthiness of the one who saved you and has brought you out from death to life. There's a way that you serve. You serve with good motives. He gives a contrast in verse 22. He says, serve not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Right? We're all familiar with the phrase, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play. Then the cat comes back and then the mice all get in line, right? And that's what we're tempted to do sometimes. When the boss comes, I'll be hard at work. But when the boss leaves, I'll go back to doing my own thing. They even have a boss button on your computer. Have you ever seen that? Right? So if you're playing a video game, uh, not that I would ever do this, if you're playing a video game or you're watching, you know, the NCAA tournament online at work when you're supposed to be working, you can click the boss button and it will blank out your screen and put up like an Excel spreadsheet, you know, like finance report, these kinds of things. What does Paul say? It's like, that's not how we serve. We don't serve by way of eye service. We don't only serve when the boss is around. We actually serve sincerely from the heart at all times. Why? Because our boss is always around. And I love him. And it's my delight to serve him. He says it again in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I think sometimes we're tempted to think, well, I serve God, so I don't have to serve men. No, God says, if you serve me, you will serve men. That that's part of what it means to serve the Lord. And the motivation for all of this, again, is the fear of the Lord. Verse 22, you do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know, you, you do it with the realization that all of my life is lived before God. There's a Latin phrase called quorum Deo. You may have heard it before. And the phrase means before the face of God. And it's the realization that all of life is sacred. All of life is religious service. Not just now, right? Right, what we're doing here, we're taking communion, we're singing songs, we're listening to the word. Everything is sacred. In fact, the word godliness in throughout the script in the New Testament, when we hear the word godliness, I think our tendency is to think that it's God-likeness, that we're to be godly, we're to be like God. But the word actually means reverence and fear. 
And it gets back to this idea of you're, you're realizing that all of my life is lived before the face of God. There's a sovereign, loving, good, and wise God who's got me right here in my cubicle or in my classroom or wherever it is that I am. And all of my work is done not for those immediately over me, but for the one supremely over me. We don't want to have self-centered service where I serve to get what I want. We want to have God-centered service where I serve as a form of worship to God. It has nothing to do with the worthiness of my earthly master. It has everything to do with the worthiness of my heavenly master. It's my attitude. It affects my work. It affects my school. It affects my family. Everything I do, I live fearing the Lord. Not in a scared, I'm terrified of the Lord way, but in a familial fear. He's my loving father. He has done nothing but good to me, and I want my life to reflect that. That's what I do. And so what does Paul say? How should we be working then? If we're to have this idea of the fear of the Lord, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. Now, when we think of heartily, we think work hard. And of course, I think that could be the application, but the word really means work from the soul from the heart. It's less about the intensity of what you're doing and more about the motive of why you're doing what you're doing. Do it from your soul. Get your heart into it. Realize that it is a form of worship to work well unto the Lord. There's two wonderful examples from our previous church of this. Both men were in their 70s or 80s, Bill and Chuck. And Bill was, would crawl around the parking lot picking up trash. And if you went up, to, no one told him to do this. This wasn't his job. He wasn't getting paid for it. And if you were to go up to Bill and say, hey, Bill, how are you doing? He would stand up with the biggest smile on his face, and he would say, I'm doing great. How are you doing? And he'd ask you questions about yourself. Why? Because he's serving the Lord. I can do, any, I can do anything with joy in my heart because I know it's for the Lord. Chuck would go around both buildings and he would pick up trash, he would empty trash cans, he would clean the bathrooms. He's not an employee of the church. He's doing it out of love. And you'd hear him coming because he'd be singing praise and worship songs the entire way as he's doing his work all around the church. Why? Because he's doing it for the Lord. So whatever it is, you can work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. You know, whatever stage of life that Christ has you in, do it with all your heart because you're doing it for him. And it may feel menial and meaningless at times, but nothing you do for the Lord is ever in vain. Right? That last math problem on your homework assignment, that dirty diaper that needs to be changed, that report that's due on Monday for work, I can do it all and I can do it from my soul because I know I'm doing it for the Lord. He's rescued me, and he's given me this work to do, and so I can do it for him. Verse 24, he motivates them even further by telling them they have a reward that they're going to get. You do it for the Lord, not for man, verse 24, because you know something. You know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your 
reward. So he's saying, don't worry about the earthly paycheck, right? The earthly bag. You're going to get a heavenly bag. And that's way better than any earthly bag that you could ever get. So work for your heavenly reward. But what I find most encouraging about these verses is that it's not only motivating that Christ is our Lord and our heavenly master, it's also motivating knowing that Christ is actually also the example of humble, obedient service. Amen. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's going to go on to talk about, again, people that are under authority. How should we respond? Verse 13, he says, be subject to every human institution. Why? For the Lord's sake. So even to governments. Yeah, but I don't like them. Well, he says, be subject to them anyway for the Lord's sake. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now look what he says. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And you think, why? Why would I do that? Why would I want any part of honoring someone who's treating me unjustly? Go down to verse 21. For to this you have been called. God actually calls us to situations where we're going to suffer unjustly. It's a calling from God. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Now, we love the idea that Christ suffered for us and that by his wounds we're healed, which he's about to say. But look what else he says about Christ's suffering. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So when Christ is walking to the cross, he's not only purchasing your redemption, he's giving you a pattern for what your life is going to look like. He says he leaves, he leaves you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's his example in the midst of unjust suffering? Verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't take it. He let him have it. No. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he gave up. No. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly, The very same thing that Paul's telling servants to do in Colossians is the very same thing that Christ did on his way to the cross. I'm going to trust my heavenly Father with whatever station of life he has me in. And Christ is our example. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins. What benefits did we receive through Christ's obedience? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And that's a pattern. It's not only that he gave us redemption, it's he, he established a pattern. 
And I think there's a real encouragement in 1 Peter and in these verses in Colossians that Paul's saying, obey in everything. Why? Because Christ's obedience purchased your redemption. And your obedience, even to unjust situations, can be used by God to proclaim that same redemption. Because when you're at the job and you're working heartily as for the Lord and everyone else is like, this boss is a jerk. Why are you doing this? I'm doing this because that's what my Savior did for me. He was willing to suffer mistreatment so that I might be benefited, so I can follow in his steps. And what have you done? You've got an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Or when you say, why why are you working harder than everybody else? Because I'm not working for a man. I'm working for the Lord. How do you work with joy? I hate this job. Because I'm not working for a man. I'm working for the Lord. Christ is our example. Obedient to the point of death. Obedience that accomplished salvation and glorified the Father. And our obedience can accomplish those same things. Obviously, we're not laying our life down, but it can lead people to see the glory of God. Back in Colossians 3, one more motivation that he gives, this time a negative one. Verse 25. says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now there's a little bit of a debate about who does this verse apply to? Does it apply to the servants, or does it apply to the masters? And while we're tempted to maybe think, oh, maybe that applies to the masters, I think it actually applies to the servants. Because there's a temptation when you're serving and people don't recognize you and you're viewed as insignificant and you're even suffering mistreatment. What's the temptation? Well, I don't have to do this then. I don't want to take that from these people. I'm not going to serve. And Paul reminds them, no, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality with God. There's no partiality on the, those that are in power, but there's also no partiality to those that are under authority. Both are required to serve the Lord heartily from the heart. Another wonderful example of this, that's not Jesus, is Joseph. Joseph in Genesis, right? He's in an inescapable, difficult circumstance. And what does he do? He keeps trusting God even when everything goes against him. Right? His brothers were intending to harm him. They were intending evil when they sold him into slavery. What does Genesis 50:20 say? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So his brothers thought, we're going to do evil toward him. Joseph thought, God is sovereign, God is good. I'm going to be faithful to him in whatever circumstance I'm in. And what did God do through Joseph? He saved a nation. You never know what a sovereign and good God is doing in the midst of your circumstances. When you continue to be faithful to God, even when the situation is hard, you can do it with purpose and joy. And that's actually a liberating thought. Though everyone else around you might think that you're in bondage to your circumstances, you're actually free, and you're serving the Lord. And so serve Christ 
when under authority. But Paul doesn't end there. He also has a word for masters. And I think we can take away from it that we need to serve Christ when we exercise authority. He says this, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Some of us might find ourselves in a position where we have the opportunity to exercise authority. And Paul wants us to know, how should you be doing that when you have that opportunity? He says, treat them justly and fairly. The, the real word there is give. Give them justice and fairness. So when someone is under your charge, what should you do? You should give them something. What is it that you're going to give them? I'm going to give them justice. I'm going to give them fairness. So if you're a boss or a manager at work, what are you giving those to those that work under you? If you're a parent, what are you giving to your children? If you're a husband, what are you giving to your wife? Are you giving them justice and fairness? The motive is the same as it was to the servants, that you have a master in heaven. And it's amazing how the same truth can have very different effects. If you're under authority, the idea that you have a master in heaven, that is a comforting thought. That this earthly master, this is a temporary relationship, and I'm serving the Lord. If you're someone in authority, the idea that you have a master is a threat, right? Because you have someone that you have to answer to about how you are treating those that are entrusted to you. But once again, we see that Christ is our ultimate example. How does Christ, our master, treat those under his care? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Here the context is marriage. But it's a wonderful picture. How does Christ use his authority? Verse 25, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How does Christ exercise his authority? He exercises it for the benefit of those under his care. He wants them blameless and spotless. He wants them to be everything that God intends them to be. And so how should we exercise our authority? We should exercise it for the benefit of those that are entrusted to us, even when it costs us. Christ gave himself for those that he was serving, those that he was the Lord over. He was actually willing to lay down his rights to be a benefit to others. And in so doing, he is the perfect example of how one should use their authority. Use it to serve those that are under your care. So incredibly, whether we are under authority or exercising authority, we do it all under and for Christ himself. It's amazing to think that when he went to the cross, he was being the perfect example of one under authority and one exercising authority. He walks to the cross as one under authority. 
taking every step not only in submission to the Roman authorities, but in joyful submission to his heavenly Father. He obeys in everything his heavenly Father and thereby receives his heavenly reward. But when he walks to the cross, he also walks to the cross as one exercising authority. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And so he takes every step not to save his life, but to lose his life for our sake, using authority to give life and to purchase people freedom from the bondage of sin. As a master, he doesn't treat us justly and fairly, because if he did that, we'd have no hope. As our heavenly master, he gives us not justice and fairness, but mercy and grace, what we desperately need so that we can be forgiven of our sins and enjoy fellowship with our heavenly master for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're time and time again, we just are amazed at what your son would do for us. He is our heavenly master, and we are his servants. And there is nothing negative about that relationship at all. He's the perfect heavenly master who laid down his life for us to sanctify us, so to wash us with the water of the word so that we might be holy and blameless without blemish before him for all eternity. And Lord, may we be his loving and joyful servants, that it would be our delight to obey him in everything, even when that means that we're needing to obey earthly masters for a time. May we see it, Lord, not as something that is anything to do with the worthiness of our earthly masters, May we see it as an opportunity to follow in Christ's steps. And may you use it the same way that you use Christ's obedience, that it might be used for the salvation of others. Father, also just pray that you would, again, encourage us that your word has nothing to hide. That when we see it in its context, it's nothing that we have to hide or be to shy away from. It's actually quite beautiful as it shows time and time again your character and your desire to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We're so thankful to be a part of that. We're so thankful to be those very tribe, tongue, people, and nations that you have saved. And we look forward to celebrating with every people, tribe, and tongue in eternity with you. Lord, help us. Help us as those under authority. Help us as those who have to exercise authority throughout our weeks. This is a text that's not, it's not a Sunday text. This is a Monday through Saturday text. And so help us to live in a way that honors Christ, that always acknowledges that he is the Lord of our lives and that we would be able to do it with joy and with gladness and that we would see wonderful fruit come as a result. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we're your children. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat>